0: Alright, so as I mentioned, we are going to be spending May, June, July, August. We are going to go deep, deeper than I've ever gone. Hopefully deeper than than we've ever appreciated in this massive concept that can seem so simplistic. The concept of love. And as we began the year looking at the the Great Commission... That is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them to do everything i have with you. Surely I'm with you to the very end of the age. Uh, we began the year with the Great Commission, and now we will take our, our our time through this summer to really look at the Great Commandment, or even as the, this passage relates it to, the greatest commandment. So if you're not in Mark chapter 12, go ahead and turn over there, and we will find Jesus now zeroing in On the primacy and the centrality of love. But let me caution you right now. You may think, oh, I got this. Oh, this is simplistic. This is nothing close to either of those things. This is really so astounding so counterintuitive, so mind-blowing, the deeper that we go into it, I guarantee you that as, as you really wrestle with us and, and really continue in the scriptures, have the one another relationships that will not only help us to have a, a, a kind of a raw inventory of where we're at with, with love, that at the end of this, we really will be a people together that are radically transformed and completely defined by the love of God as seen in Christ. So, that's a tall order, but we're going to work hard for this, and we're going to get after this. We have a little bit of time, so this will serve mainly, merely as introduction for tonight. But let's pray together, and then into Mark twelve twenty eight we will begin to study. God in heaven, what joy it is to be gathered together, brothers and sisters, to see all the good news, uh, so much good news, in fact, uh, that we have But moments in your word tonight. But I do know, God, that we do have... A congregation that comes together in amazing complement of numbers every Tuesday night. Who knew that that so many people would come on a Tuesday night to go as deep as we can go in your word. And I know, God, that through this, we'll be able to spend this time really honoring you and really being edified by you and your word in this beauty of love. Thank you, God, dearly. It's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen. I don't know why I thought of this during the prayer, but they, they mentioned the mothers in training session that's coming up on May 20th. The fathers in training session, that's fathers of if you're about to be a dad all the way, you know, through grade school, middle school kids. Uh, it's, it's great an incredible ramping up and uh, iron sharpening iron for dads. And that will occur on May 13th. And is that right? That's right here, I would imagine. And 9 a.m.? Okay, 9 a.m., May 13th, right here. So it's also regarding purity and technology. Those are radically opposing concepts. That's like saying clean glass of water and India ink. And let's see how we can make those two things get along. So anyway, purity and technology. All right, here we go. Mark 12, 28. Little bit of context, always helps to have that. Jesus has just arrived in the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday into the temple. It's in all preparation for the last week of his life. As he arrives in the temple courts, it sets off pandemonium among all of the Jewish leaders, the Sadducees who are the priestly high class, the Aristotic class, the more liberal of the, the theologians that are there amongst the crowd. But all of them, in a sense, sharpening their knives as soon as they seen Jesus. Also among the crowd of religious leaders are the Pharisees. So they're all there, all with, I think, mouths agape, like, he's coming in here? in my house? Oh no, he didn't, right? And that's the idea of, of Jesus, I mean, marching right in with gusto into the midst of the temple courts. And as soon as they do, they begin to have series of little enclaves where they begin to conspire amongst themselves. How can we trap this guy in his own words? And then there's a series of very clever tests that they want to put Jesus through and try to Maneuver him into a corner where he, in a sense, could incriminate himself. And it's Jesus' finest hour, among many of his finest hours, because time and time again, as these crowds corner him, shouting questions and trying to manipulate him, he just simply sheds it all off, has a depth of insight and is clever, beyond anything that they could have ever imagined, to do some sort of verbal jujitsu where all of a sudden they think, I've got him, and they're like, oh, he's got me. Uh, how, did, how did this happen? And, and he does it again and again, all throughout this scene. And now, after he has basically shown all of them the superiority of his alignment with the will of God and his insight into the law of God and the will of God, they now kind of ask one final question before they're like, okay, uh, we get it. This, this guy, you know what? That rabbi can beat up all our rabbis. We, we, we get it. It's true. So it's, it's after all of this altercation that we, we now have in, in Mark 12, verse 28, one of the teachers of the law, so these are all the Bible experts kind of rotating around him, uh, came and heard them debating, because that's all that was going on for, for the last uh, couple chapters here. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked, and by the way, that he had given them a good answer is, he was part of the Pharisees, and realized that Jesus just put the Sadducees in their place. Pharisees and the Sadducees had their own arguments, and so they thought, well, he did such a good job of totally trouncing the the Sadducees, you know what, maybe I'll actually ask him a real question. And so he gets a real question. Of all the commandments which is the most important? And interestingly, of all the questions, right? Uh, You know, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Uh, By what authority do you come here and do these things? All the questions were manipulative. For the first time, he seems to be getting a, a genuine question, one without guile. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, for these folks... They were good at knowing all the commandments. They knew that there were 613 commandments. They had been able to distinguish them all, parse them out, and recognize 613 discrete commandments. Part of the reason they say that the, the temple had uh, decorations of pomegranates all over the temple was because a pomegranate. Anybody ever try to eat a pomegranate? You're probably still trying. <laughs> you, you open a pomegranate, you're like, what a jib. I mean, I've had pomegranates, but this is going like, to take me hours. Like, What do I even do with this thing? But it's all seeds, right? It, this is all seeds. And supposedly, there are 613 seeds in the average pomegranate, give or take. But, but because of that, they, they, they always kind of held rather highly the idea of the pomegranate because of the 613 laws that they had so come to have expertise in. So, of all these laws, of all these commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. And he begins to quote from Deuteronomy 6. A very famous passage. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's also known as the famous six words. It's the It's the great prayer. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one, there's no other but him, to love him with all your heart with all your understanding, with all your strength, to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, normally after an interchange like this, you might think that it would conclude with, and everybody felt warm and cuddly about Jesus affirming that love is all you need. All you need is love. Love is all you need. Doesn't sound very profound, but that made many millions of dollars. Also about 50 years ago. Um, But love is love. is all you need. All you need is love. And at at first you would think, okay, good. You know, we, we can do that. I can I can feel warmly towards God and I can feel warmly towards my neighbor Got it. If if that's all that it takes, isn't that wonderful? And right away, you could imagine, in the hearing of this, the Sadducees, and if I take a bit of liberty with this, representing maybe a liberal slant to theology, and the Pharisees, representing a conservative slant to theology, are are right away maybe starting to think about how they can better claim what it is that this man has just said. Because, of course, the Pharisees would, would really want... To be able to find out okay of all the laws what's the big one to make sure that we really do it the sadducees are probably thinking hey is it really that important to be so picky about checking all the boxes and doing all those things isn't it the heart that really matters shouldn't we just have a beautiful sentiment of sincerity in our hearts that's what really is a great honoring of god And and then, of course, the the Pharisees would, would, you know, have this back and forth through all of this. And we'll discuss that, by the way, maybe ad nauseum, really, over the course of this summer. Summer of love with nausea. Uh, But but, but here's here's the, the, the interesting thing. Instead of everybody coming away saying, wow, wasn't that really special what he said? It doesn't say that. It says, and from then on, no one dared. That's a loaded word. No one dared ask him any more questions. It has the sense of them being shaken to their very core, knees buckling, having heard what they just heard, that they did not even think to try to invite any more feedback from Jesus at this point. It seems incongruous, doesn't it? It seems like just the opposite reaction that you would imagine instead they were like oh I like your answer you know what I'm going to dare all the more greatly now to ask you more input no there's something about what Jesus said that we do not understand and that we just paper over too simply to think ah love of course isn't that a wonderful thing that's not how they heard it because that's not how they responded and that's not how it left them it left them weak in the knees to realize what it is that Jesus just brought their way with regard to an understanding of what it was to be in alignment with God. We have one minute. And I'll tell you why. Next, I'll start to tell you why. You know, because we're made in the image of God, there's... There's a deep conflict in our hearts around the whole idea of obeying commandments. And being made in the image of God, we want a master, we want God to be our master, having been made in His image. But also, because of the brokenness of our hearts and the fallenness of our nature, we are also anti-authoritarian to our core. And, And more than we recognize, Anything that would oppress us causes us fear or recoil of anything that would master us. And, and so we're stuck in this dilemma like, yes, I, I want to be guided, but don't you dare hem me in. I gotta be me, but I'd like to be a me that is in alignment with like all really good stuff. But if any of that really good stuff commands will of God impinges upon my Sinful self-nature. Well, you know what? I'm, I'm gonna rail against that. It's this, this horrible kind of conflict that we have going inside every single one of us that is at play here as Jesus now lays down. This is how you are to make sense of the commandments of God. You want to be guided by commands, but the minute any of them in any way interfere with your own agenda, well then suddenly you, you have an anti-authoritarian rearing within you that really shocks you to the degree that you could rail against God in, in those very moments. And so it's, it's with all of that that as, as they are shocked at the end of this, petrified, dumbfounded, I have a British daughter-in-law, so I get to use Britishisms, gobsmacked <laughs> at, the, at the end of this, and gobsmacked as they are, It's because Jesus is saying to them. If you want to understand the law. And if that's what you're asking me about. Then you need to understand the motivation for all of the law. Proper law keeping is always, always motivated by love. But on the other hand. Because all the commandments hang on these two. Jesus says, Matthew 22, he says it that way, because all the commandments hang on these two, while on the one hand, all law keeping needs to be motivated by love, but on the other hand, all love is defined by keeping the law. And when you start to appreciate the depth of those two things, you say, well, I do love God, but yet I decide to be adulterous. Well, do I really love God? Because loving God cannot be suddenly kind of revved up based on my own guidelines, but, but on God's himself. It's, it's why he provides them. And so we have another tension that begins to brew. Again, the law needs to be motivated only by love if you're really going to keep the law. And yet love needs to be defined by the law if you're going to really know and be able to say that you really do love. What Jesus does in saying that is he makes the law heavier than any of them could have ever imagined. And they suddenly realize, if I'm going to be able to say that I love, it's going to require a real keeping of the law. And if I'm going to say that I keep the law, then it's going to have to come out of the fact that I really do love. But I think all of us recognize, for example, maybe Jesus could have picked one of the Ten Commandments. Maybe it's do not bear false witness against your neighbor. And yet, so often, the reason that you tell the truth is because you want to be approved by God. I tell the truth because I want God to approve of me. If that's the way that we go about keeping that law, then we're keeping it out of fear. Fear that God would perhaps reject me. And so because I fear that God would reject me, I keep the law, I tell the truth, out of fear. Or, maybe it's not out of that. Maybe it's because I want to be known as a truth-telling guy. I want to be known as a man of integrity. As I walk around my brethren, I want them to see me in that way. And so maybe it's not out of fear, but because I, you know, I am a truth teller, and, you know, truth be known, I tell the truth. You should consider me a truthy kind of guy. What is that but pride? And so, so much of the keeping of the law ends up being out of a desire to be accepted by God, or not rejected by Him, thus fear. Or, on the, on the flip side of it, pride. Pride to be seen as a man who keeps it. By the way, it's no different than the flip side of breaking the law. Why do you lie? You know why I lie? Because I'm afraid. I'm afraid that somebody's going to think less of me. Or why else do I lie? Because I'm proud. Right? I want somebody to think more highly of me. So I go ahead and embellish that accomplishment or that resume Or that story that went down in a different way. And, ah, isn't isn't that more amusing now to you? Don't I look better to you now through that? So lying is is motivated by fear or pride. And if we have not really come to the, the place where Jesus wants us, keeping the law is also motivated by fear or pride. Loving God, even, is motivated by a fear or a pride. You know, fear that, oh my goodness, if I if I don't love him, well, what's he going to do to me? Or, since I am kind of known as a, a loving God kind of a guy, well, let it be known all the more that I really love God. And then I can get my kicks out of that. Or even I do it, not because I think Federico's going to think more highly of me, and, and he will, but, <laughs> but but I do it because I'll think more highly of me. And that's enough for me for the day. And it's just self-pride that works in that. So, what Jesus is saying, the typical way that every other construct under heaven has ever kept the law has always been because of either fear or pride. And it's only under Christianity where all of that gets blown out of the old construct, flipped upside down, and a brand new way of understanding all of life and the kingdom of God is suddenly able to be ushered in and that we don't <coughs> obey the law because we want to please God, but we obey the or, or, or I'm sorry, because we want to gain favor with God. We obey the law because we already are in a rapturous, astounding delight. Knowing that God loves us to the fullest. We love because God first loved us. And until we can really appreciate that, and until we can really understand the depth of all of that, we have no shot of being able to appreciate the depth of what Jesus is saying here, that these are the greatest commandments. First of all, love God. Love God with all you've got from the tip of your toes to the, to the top of your head. Love God. And by the way, the natural extension of that is that you're going to love everybody else on top of that as well. But if you think that's going to come about because you're going to get greater standing and so you do it, or if you're going to do that because you don't want to get whacked, because if you don't do it, you're worried about what God will do or what people will do to you. Well, then you have in no way come close to understanding the kingdom of God. And you are in no way in alignment with the kingdom of God. And and he says to this man here, you're not far from the kingdom of God. He perceives that this man is beginning to be able to appreciate it. And that all of his paradigms are about to be flipped and really realigned. Repentance is really about to be ushered in, in this man. And and for us tonight, I'm just going to leave it at this. We we will begin to to look at what is the proper way that we can really be entrenched in really having the deep appreciation that results in nothing but the logical result of loving God in the most rapturous, passionate, famous, and and delightful way, effortless way in in, in many ways as well, to, to really be able to get to that place. But to get to that place, we've got to first really be able to recognize how poorly we really do love. But at the same time, because of Christ, how dearly loved we are. And we'll spend some time making our way through all of those nuances, looking at most of the famous passages on love as we make our way through this summer of love. For right now, as we get into our small groups, to be able to have just a bit of discussion just just talk right now. Why is it that you really do obey? Thanks.